0: Let's pray. Father, help us to be attentive to you and responsive to your word. Give us grace in the Holy Spirit and in your Son. Amen. Please be seated. If you've read Through the Looking Glass, you might remember this scene when Alice meets Tweedledee and Tweedledum under a tree. And they start talking about what Alice is thinking about. And at one point, Tweedledum says, I know what you're thinking about, but it isn't so. Know how. And then Tweedledee chimes in and says, Contrarywise, if it was so, it might be. And if it were so, it would be but as it isn't, it ain't. That's logic. <laughs> logic. The study of correct reasoning and good arguments. I studied logic when I did my undergrad in philosophy. It was part of my degree. Surprisingly, though, I don't remember anybody referencing the specialized logic of Tweedledee and Tweedledum. <laughs> I did enjoy logic though. I, I took informal logic, critical reasoning, symbolic logic was actually where I got my best marks in. Yeah, and I just love, I love good logical reasoning, a good philosophy book that talks about things of significance. Did you notice Paul's logic in our Romans reading this morning? So we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8 verses 39 all the way to the end of the chapter. So yes, we're going to be Finishing our series on Romans this morning, I I didn't hit another raccoon (laughs) or anything else, so we're going uh, going for it today. But if you want to continue in Romans, this series is coming to an end, but if you want to look into a book study, one of the possibilities, Kyle Gibbs is doing a book study on reading Romans through Eastern eyes, and he was telling me about it, sounds super fascinating, so get in touch with him if you want to keep going in Romans Paul wrote, though, in Romans 8, verse 31, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, if God is for us, who can be against us? In giving this question, Paul is helping the Christians, the Roman Christians, to start to think logically about God based on what he has done In his son. Not just an abstract idea about God, but something he has done in history and the meaning of that event. That's what Paul is helping the Roman Christians to do when he offers all these questions. Now, when he says who, you're going to notice who includes both personal and impersonal forces, even right here off the bat. But who can be against us? If God, who is our judge, who always gets the final word, whose strength and power have no equal, if he is for us, then no one and no thing can ever ultimately succeed against us. So certainly Paul's not saying, hey, no one ever comes against us in our life, in life as believers. There were plenty of people accusing and coming against the early Christians. There were plenty of people in powers coming against Paul in his life that he names. But because God is the Almighty, because he always gets the last word, no one and no thing ever ultimately will succeed against the people of God in Christ. And what Paul says next is how we know that. What that's based upon. And what we can expect from God because of this. Verse 32. He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not with him and in him also give us everything else? It's an a fortiori argument. My Latin's not great, but that's simply an argument from the greater to the lesser. So if this greater, harder thing is true, then certainly this lesser, easier thing is also true. So if I'm willing to give you my car, you can assume that I'd be willing to give you my paddleboard. Although I really like my paddleboard, so in some days that might not be true. <laughs> but if God is willing to do and give us this hardest thing of all for him, how much more is he willing to do everything else. If God is willing to give up his own son to death, this son whom he loves, whom he's known for all eternity, who he dwells in and who dwells in him, in whom his soul delights, if he is willing to give him up to death for us, then certainly he is willing to give us all things. That's Paul's logic here. His argument that needs to work its way into our thinking. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians church, he tells them how he and his companions were considered poor as having nothing and yet possessing everything, he says. How does that work? All things. That's a lot of things. (laughs) I don't know how exactly that works. That's a lot. But Paul's argument here is all things pale in comparison to the gift God has already given us in Christ. Everything else is easier for God, lesser for God to give to us, that we can certainly expect from him based on what he has already done and given us. When life goes dark, that will be your brightest light. What is said here in Romans 8 will be the brightest light for you in the dark night of the soul. Make sure you're grounded in this before that night comes. Back to Romans. Paul comes back to something that he said at the beginning of the chapter when he said, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 33, who's going to bring a charge against God-elect, God's elect? At this point, we should know the only legitimate person who could do that is God. right? He's the judge. And then we learn early on in Romans, he has plenty to charge us with. But Paul says here, yet God... It is God who justifies, who declares us to be right, righteous, just in Christ, despite all these other things that count against us. Who is it to condemn? Paul says it is Christ, actually. If you read in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, all judgment has been given to the Son Paul says elsewhere, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for all things in our lives. Paul says, it is he who has the right to condemn. And yet, Paul says, it is he who has died for us, who has been condemned for us who has risen from the dead for us for our justification, he says elsewhere, and is now actually interceding for us. So when our judge, the very one to whom we're going to have to give an account to, is the very one who died for us to forgive us, to justify us, who's all right now interceding for us, we are in a good situation. to say the least. Then we can see more and more how God is for us, how he's working all things together for good for us, and just how much he loves us. And that's going to be the dominant word for Paul in this next remaining section, the all-conquering word. The last section here is in Hebrew chiastic structure where the first is related to the last and the second is related to the second last and the culmination comes actually in the middle in this structure. So it's A, B, C, B, A. So the first A is a question, Paul says, who will separate us From the love of Christ. The last A is the answer nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. The first B is a list of things that would appear to separate us from the love of Christ affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, all things Christians have and continue to experience. And if we imagine anything else in all of creation, that's not listed there, that would separate us from the love of God, we would think. Anything in life or death, angels, fallen angels, presumably, oppressive rulers, anything present, any powers as high as you can go and as low as you can go, that is meant to be covered by the second list, the second B. And then right in the middle, in the C, we have the crux of the chiastic structure. Verse 37, No, in all these things, in even all these things, we are more than victorious. We are more than conquerors. Not through our own strength or wit or courage or impressive abilities, but, Paul says, through him, who loves us. We're more than conquerors in all these things because these things aren't just eventually overcome and defeated by the love of God. More than that, somehow, as we said last week, they are eventually turned into something good, worked together for something good for us. Knowing these things have given the people of God incredible confidence and hope in the most dire of situations. And to those who don't share our Christian faith, or even faith at all, religious faith at all, this can be quite compelling and has been for people. For others, it can can appear quite unreasonable, irrational. Illogical. I don't think it is. I think it's very logical, in fact. But that's what it appears to people, and understandably so, if you don't know the basis for it. In 1971, there was an essay-sharing symposium called Theology and Falsification. These are philosophers, not poets. <laughs> And the first contribution was by the British philosopher Anthony Flew. He taught at Oxford for a time. And at this time, well, for the majority of his life, he was a staunch atheist. And in his paper, he offered what was called the parable of the invisible gardener. And this was to expose how believers continue to believe in something despite there being evidence or even when there's evidence that counts against it. This is what's his perspective. And this is a lot of people's perspective. And in many cases, it might be true. What is interesting though is eventually, near the end of his life, the evidence for an invisible creator changed his mind. (laughs) He became a deist uh, and he was admitting to to being drawn to the writings of of N.T. Wright. But not at this point. So he offers this parable. And in response to this parable, Another was given, called the Parable of the Partisan. And this was offered by the English philosopher Basil Mitchell, who also taught at Oxford, but he was arguing in favor of believers and, and to offer a way to understand how believers affirm their faith and why they do this, despite appearances to the opposite. So it's called the Parable of the Partisan, or also the Parable of the Mysterious Stranger. And here it is. In a time of war, in an occupied country, a member of the resistance meets one night a stranger. They spend the evening in conversation. The stranger tells the partisan, if you're not sure clear on the meaning of that, that's just uh, typically an ordinary person who's not a soldier, but who trains with others to fight against an occupying power. The stranger tells the partisan, that he himself is a member of the resistance. Indeed, that actually he is in command of it and urges the partisan to trust him, no matter what happens, no matter how things look. Well, the partisan becomes utterly convinced through this conversation of the stranger's sincerity and trustworthiness and decides to trust him. They never meet again in these conditions of intimacy. But sometimes the stranger is seen helping the members of the resistance and the partisan is grateful and he turns to his friends and he says, see, he's on our side. And then sometimes the stranger is seen in the uniform of the enemy, handing over patriots to the enemy. On these occasions, the the friends murmur against him, but the partisan still says, no, I don't, doesn't look good, but he is still on our side. Trust me. We don't understand fully what's going on here. That the stranger is not trying to deceive them. Sometimes he asks the stranger for help, and he gets it, and he's thankful, and sometimes he asks, and he doesn't get the help that he's asked for, and he says, the stranger must know best. There must be a reason I don't know about. As you imagine, if this keeps going on, the friends come to a point and they say, well, when is it going to be a point when you say you are wrong and this guy is not on your side? And yet the partisan, despite all things, continues to affirm his faith in the stranger. Now, we could unpack this parable and talk about this for a while, uh, but let's reimagine this parable with Paul as the partisan and Jesus as the mysterious stranger. And their significant meeting in the night was when Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and his eyes were opened suddenly to the Son of God who loved him, who gave himself for him, who was for him, obviously, who who Paul came to know as the true liberator of every oppression, and the rightful Lord and leader of all. And we read sometimes in Paul's adventures, right, sometimes he received healing, miraculous deliverance from situations. Other times he was led into intense suffering, persecution. But no matter what the circumstances, no matter how good or terrible, Paul was still convinced that God was on his side, or rather that God brought Paul onto his side, that God was for Paul, right? That God was giving Paul all things even in Christ, and that somehow he's working all things together for good. This was Paul's conviction. And why? Why did Paul think this way? What was the crux? What was it that he learned from his encounters and revelations of Jesus? It was this. God, his son not sparing. God, who did not withhold his son, but did the unthinkable and gave him over to death for our sake. That can, that can, we hear that so many times, it's maybe not fresh and as potent as it needs to be. But it came powerfully to me one time, over a decade ago, when Cole, our oldest son, who, who's not here this morning, he's playing bass in a friend's band at another church this morning. But this was a time when Cole was a year and a half, and we were camping on an island. <clears throat> and we... So, this was when I was a youth pastor. We were living in Ohio, but we were having this camp in Tennessee, hot Tennessee. It was hotter than this, very humid, sweating more than you're sweating now. And we were camping, and it was the middle of the night, and in the middle of the night, Cole got croup for the first time. And I didn't know, at this point, I hadn't had any, any medical training, but all you hear is this loud barking, if you know what this is. It's when the upper airway swells, starts to swell shut and they struggle to breathe. And so they have this (laughs) terrible sound, sounds like a seal. And you might want to laugh when you hear it there, but it's terrible when it's coming from your one and a half year old in the middle of the night on an island and you have to get out from there by a boat. So we go to the boat driver and we wake them up and we're like, we need to get out of here and get to a hospital. We don't know what's going on. And so they get up and they go with us and we start taking the boat through the islands. and. The boat driver gets lost, (laughs) and Cole's croup gets worse and worse, and he's in my arms. I'm thinking, he could die. And it was an unthinkable thought. Um, I couldn't imagine, but I thought this could be it. This could be Cole's death. He's a year and a half old, and we we can't get to the land. Well. You know he did. (laughs) We eventually, after I think, what, was it an hour, hour and a half, Anna, when we finally got to the mainland, and then it was still another half hour drive or something to the hospital. We got him breathing treatment and he was okay. But, it made me think, (laughs) I, I started to reflect on, I can't imagine a situation where I would intentionally give my son over to death for somebody else. I can't imagine a love I would need to have for someone to do that, even believing in the resurrection. I, I just can't imagine doing that myself. And that's when that truth came home. Our God did that. Not because he hated his son. This is the son he loves. <laughs> he delights in. And he gave him over to death for us. That was impressed upon me and sealed in my heart from that day forward. And I'll never forget that. I have come to a new understanding of why Paul would say, of course, God is for us. No darkness, no difficulty in all creation, not a pandemic, not the polarization that's going on, not any racism or riots, not a post-Roe World, Not any trauma or mental health in our own life going on will ever be able to separate us from this love of God. If you hear anything this morning, my prayer is that you would learn to let the logic of Jesus Christ become the logic of your life. If God did not withhold his own son, if he gave him up for us all, we know he is for us. We know he will give us all things. We know he will work all things together for good. We know nothing will separate us from this love. Let the logic of Jesus become the logic of your life. May it be so. Amen.